everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel, we have Ari. Hello. Alex. Hello. Special guest panelist, Oscar Spencer. Hello. And last but not least, our special guest for this episode is Mark Cohen. Hello. Hi, who are you? Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> sure. So my name's Mark Cohen. I'm a software engineer. I guess I'd kind of class myself as a generalist, but I've spent a lot of time working on web development and related things. I have a special affinity for programming languages, specifically designing them and implementing them. And so early in my career, I kind of stumbled backwards into TC39, working on designing and implementing JavaScript, which is, I guess, why I'm here today. So TC39 is the shadowy group that makes JavaScript. Are you shadowy indeed. Yeah, I mean, is that where y'all imagined the language came from? Like, where do you think JavaScript came from? Like, how does it keep on getting new things? Lots of cocaine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think in the in the olden days, you're probably not wrong. I think it's it's pronounced Lacroix cane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, uh, little known fact: JavaScript is actually a legume. It grows in the ground. <laughs> Today I learned. <laughs> Harvesting the fresh crop of JavaScript every year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we uh, mental so, images are amazing. <laughs> I mean, that explains why it's coffee scripts, and uh, also that why it was derived from Java. I see it. The committee is actually older than me, which was weird. On my first plenary, there was like we did, you know, intros going around the table, and one of the delegates said he had been on the committee since the year I was born. Wow. Which, uh, I won't divulge on this podcast, but that was a strange experience. <laughs> so I guess uh, JavaScript isn't the only legume in the room. We also have this young whippersnapper over here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess what is TC39? Well, what does TC even stand for and the 39? I mean, it's not 39 years old, uh, right? Because the number doesn't get bigger. Okay. So it stands for Technical Committee 39. So TC39. Well, I guess the 39 is just arbitrary. It was the 39th technical committee created under ECMA International. So TC39 lives within ECMA International, which is a standards body that works on a lot of different things, actually. So a lot of, you know, for example, a lot of the ECMA member companies are printer manufacturers from like the 70s and 80s. You know, they were working on like interoperable printer standards. Oh, related fun fact, ECMA stands for, well, used to stand for European Computer Manufacturers Association. Now it's just kind of an acronym, like they uncapitalized the whole thing. So it's just the word ECMA because it sounds cool. I don't know. But yeah, so the purpose of ECMA and sort of, I guess, half the purpose of TC39 is to facilitate like international IP law issues there you know there are a lot of companies on the committee that are that like care a lot about that stuff it's important to have those problems solved for us so that they don't intrude on committee time like you don't have people you know 
asking to call their lawyers before they approve a proposal or something like that, which those issues very rarely crop up during committee time. I mean, it's usually around like meta stuff, but that's sort of the purpose of ECMA and where TC39 lives in the world. So then why is it called ECMAScript and not TC39 script if ECMA is like the larger group and then TC39 actually does the like JavaScript yeah. stuff? Yeah, I don't know why they chose ECMAScript specifically, but I do know that the reason it's ECMAScript and not JavaScript is that is actually that Oracle won't let us use the Java trademark. Yeah. I mean, there's some, so there's some irony about a group of like people protecting IP law and not being able to use something. <laughs> Another company is like, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Extra ironic because Oracle is actually on TC39. Oh, <laughs> they have That's a delegation. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. And funnily enough, nobody on the committee actually calls it ECMAScript. Like it, I guess, besides the, you know, the places where it's labeled that on the website, like we're not sitting in plenary discussing ECMAScript with one another. Everyone just says JavaScript. It's just we can't. Not even like <laughs> ES next or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess people do say like, you know, ES 2020, 2021. Or whatever. But, you know, we're not like sitting around talking about, oh, what's next for ECMAScript? Or do we really want to see this feature included in ECMAScript? Just kind of funny that it's, you know, only the public facing references <laughs> have to be sanitized. Basic question What is plenary? I thought it was like that thing that you use on like a Ouija board, <laughs> a little pointer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, plenary is the meeting that is held regularly. The interval is currently under some change, but like roughly every two months where the committee gathers to discuss the various proposals that are, you know, that are being worked on and I guess debate them and decide whether they're ready to advance to the next stage. That's kind of that's the primary purpose of, of plenary is to decide on stage advancement. And the reason that this happens this way is because as a bylaw of the committee, everything has to happen by consensus. So there's no like majority voting going on. There are a lot of different schemes to decide these sort of things in different standards bodies. Like you might have read about in the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force, they have, I think it's like a tiebreaker method where the decision is made by which side can hum the loudest. Is that real? Yeah, it's real. I, I'm Do they not, have I'm the same joking. number of people, hum, humber of people to make it fair? Or is... Oh my no, God, you, Yeah, so you can, no. you can like... <laughs> that seems to... That oh, wait, explains, I missed a pun. That explains yes. a few things that... Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> a lot of other... You know, then there's, of course, there's majority vote which is, I guess, the first logical choice. The problem with that is then you end up with like a few companies packing the room. Right, As opposed yeah. to with humming, where they could pack the room with hummers? <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, humming is the truly fair <laughs> standards body decision method. My mind is blown by that. I really hope the secondary purpose is like an acapella group or something. <laughs> IETF acapella, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole body of like research there, honestly, into 
you know, how to most fairly conduct standards body decisions. I'm not an expert at all on that. So I'm going to refrain from further comment. But the way that TC39 went with was consensus. And that's a big driver behind like a lot of decisions that come out of the committee where you might wonder why did that happen? It's because you have to reach like full consensus. And so in order to reach consensus, the solution is basically we all get together synchronously, you know, every two months or so to uh, discuss everything and basically give opportunity to object. So it's, we don't like go around the whole room and like actively solicit a yes vote from everyone. It's just, you know, this proposal is going to advance to stage four. Are there any objections? And then if there are none, then we say it has consensus. You know, that explains a ton of why these <laughs> why these proposals take so long. Proposals yeah. that I've, I've been like, you know, I've been waiting for this for literally forever. <laughs> and it feels like, oh, it just keeps getting pushed to the next ECMA year or whatever. Yeah. I mean, remember when they were like, we're taking the pipe out of view because of ECMA? And it's only like now that we're seeing the famous pipe? It's coming. Yeah. It's happening. Ceci n'est pas une pipe. <laughs> oh man <laughs> the good news about that is the pipe operator just advanced to stage two which means that it is eventually going to be included in the spec so stage two is a pretty high bar to clear which is that the committee intends for this to be included in the specification eventually stage one is basically this is an interesting problem that's worth solving but then by stage two it's like we this will get included in some capacity. So has the debate between whether we're going with the F sharp or the other one been resolved or is that still up for debate? So the champions have resolved it uh, in favor of hack pipes. And that's the current form of the proposal. That's the form I would expect it to be advanced in. There was substantial... Can we quickly recap what it is? Oh, what are the options? <laughs> it sounds like we're talking about like Hercules in like the Colosseum and they're like duking <laughs> it out. So there are two different ideas for how the semantics of the pipe operator should be. I am actually. So I'm trying to look up an example here because it is very confusing. And. That'll give us an opportunity to say belatedly, nerd, at Alex. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The issues on this repo are such a minefield. So the pipes proposal, the thing I was about to launch into was that this has turned into like a huge mess because there's a small, you know, chunk of the community very invested in F-sharp pipes, that particular style or that particular syntax. And we actually had to like ban some people, which is the first time that's happened in my tenure on the committee. We had to like ban people from GitHub and Matrix and whatnot for Scandal. like literally starting flame wars on this repos or on this proposals issue tracker. Didn't realize this episode was going to be spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's wild. Can we very quickly establish what exactly is a pipe operator? What does it? What would it do? <laughs> Yeah. So generally, <laughs> a pipe operator or the pipe operator, regardless of which syntax we end up going with, the pipe operator will allow for 
sort of more composable, more flexible function chaining or nested functions. So it's sort of whenever you would have like a long function chain, you know, dot then something, dot then something else, dot, you know, two string, I, I don't know what, you could turn that into using the pipeline operator or whenever you would have a large nested function call, like passing, you know, passing something to a function and then calling another function with that as the argument and then calling another function with that as the argument, you can turn that into a use of the pipeline operator. And it's a little more flexible than either of those approaches because it allows you to sort of, it allows you to indicate where data is going with syntax. So you don't have to declare intermediate variables in the middle. So for example, like let's say you had Let's say you were making a request and then you want to pass that to, to JSON, right? But you don't care about the actual the value of the request that like comes back from fetch. You just care about the JSON. So you could say, you know, const JSON equals, and then you do your fetch, and then you pipe it to to JSON. And then inside of to JSON, you just put a little syntactic identifier. The current form is the caret symbol, but the symbol is sort of up for debate. That's not set in stone. But so you would just put the caret symbol in there, and that symbol is sort of part of the pipeline operator, and it says to the engine, hey, whatever result was before the pipe, stick it here where the caret is. So it lets you control where data is going without having to declare intermediate variables. Sort of a middle ground between like having a big list of variables for every step in whatever you're composing and chaining or nested function calls where you can't control where things are going in that nature. Yeah, with that caret symbol, I feel like there could be some leeway in there too of like ultimately being like, okay, cool. If you want to use the caret symbol to define where it goes, great. If you don't provide a caret symbol, we're just going to assume that you're calling a function and providing it as the first argument. And I think that could be sort of the, like, if you wanted consensus, there you go. Yeah. Well, it seems like Alex has definitely picked a side. I'll be honest, I did like the F-sharp syntax. Fun fact, he was the guy that got banned from TC39. Yeah, I'm having a hard time looking this up now. I can't see it anywhere. I don't understand why. I think it might have actually gotten like scrubbed from GitHub. Oh, wow. There was somebody accusing Tab Atkins of like abusing power or abuse of power. Wow. And like changed their Twitter bio to TC39 is corrupt. (laughs) <laughs> and wrote up this whole screen. It was it was wild. Amazing. Yeah, I think it probably got scrubbed from GitHub. Poor tab. Yeah, seriously, poor tab. It was it was really rough. I read the whole thread. Yeah, I'm assuming it got taken down, but Yeah, that's one of those things where like, I mean, that's what caused Guido Van Rossum to step down from being the benevolent dictator for life in Python was that there was the mm-hmm. walrus operator And it was such a heated argument over how it should be implemented and whether or not even the language needed it. And after it got approved, he like the next day said, cool, I'm retiring. Don't talk to me anymore. Yeah. The Consensus Podcast. No ASMR. I will kill you. (laughs) Misophonia. Misophonia? But you can have both misophonia and ASMR. What is misophonia? It's the hate of noise. Oh. Chewing? Yes. Chewing. A lot of bodily function sounds like coughing, clearing your throat, 
Oh, I just heard someone swallow. <laughs> right when you finish that, I heard it. I'm going to stay far away from the mic when I'm not talking now. <laughs> ASMR Among Us. Oh, man. That'd be so funny. We have to do that. We really have to do that. Well, we'll do it sometime. <laughs> I'm so glad you muted, Alex, because I have a feeling that you're being rude. <laughs> would that be considered, if we have you involved from TC39, then would that be considered ECMASMR? Oh my God. <laughs> ECMASMR. Us. No. <laughs> nice. We do have a hobby of like cutesy tool names like that. Like we have a, there's actually a really big tool chain for producing the like pretty HTML that the spec is rendered in and the tool is called ECMARKUP. Nice. So did you say pretty? Yeah. Well, relatively speaking. Oh, it has it has Mark in it. That's a pretty name. I think it's pretty. <laughs> Subjective. <laughs> Does it default to Comic Sans? Because if not, eh. You're never going to win that war, Alex. Wait, are you a Comic Sans appreciator? A Comic Fans? <laughs> oh, Tessa. That's so good. Alex, I should introduce you to somebody on the committee who does everything. Like every, they're a pretty big force on the committee. Like they're always around and always involved. And every presentation is in Comic Sans. And they also use Comic Code for yes. their editor font. Yes. Yeah. Someone yeah. who understands me. <laughs> no. I thought it was bad enough. Like my lease agreements come in like that obnoxious font that kind of looks like Comic Sans, but is like even more childish. Oh, Dank Mono. <laughs> <laughs> Dank oh <my> Mono. <laughs> oh my God. I don't like you, Tessa. <laughs> Just kidding. The one that comes with Apple, like Chancery or something, the handwriting one. Oh, Segway Script. Segway UI. Segoe? No, like, yeah, it looks like adolescent handwriting, but a font. Okay, mm. not all of us and- have great handwriting, Ari. I'm sorry. I'll write it neatly next time. But no, like, yeah, like, literally, it, like, the heights are, like, slightly varied, and, like, literally... Oh, like, dang, <laughs> <laughs> That sounds really frustrating to read a lease agreement in. Like, it's supposed to be an official document. Yeah, no, like, but every year it comes, I'm like, why? Why? You should sign that lease agreement in red pen or something. Be like, fix your fonts. <laughs> Since apparently we have no standards. <laughs> <laughs> sign it in crayon with your non-dominant hand. Yeah. Two can play at this game. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. But going back to silly names, I need to know what this walrus thing is because it doesn't sound real. Oh, yeah. Oh, so in Python, you have a walrus operator, which allows you to do inline assignments. So imagine... Is it colon equals? No. Yeah, it's colon equals. So it looks like it's a set of eyes with an equal sign. So you have two big teeth and it looks like a walrus. Tessa, was that a wild guess? It was because I was we we were doing that in like Rust or something, and I was like, "This should be a ligature." It's just like a slightly longer equal sign, and I was like, "That's ridiculous." Who would actually do this? Python. <laughs> yeah, and it was very contentious. But essentially, what it allows you to do is that rather than having to go like x equals zero and then start a for loop and be like four whatever, because in Python you can't do inline assignments in a for. Anyway, you would be able to just like 
in one line both assign the value and then like have the like the use case for it is very very niche and like when you need it you really need it and when you don't need it it's useless basically and yeah so like flux architecture basically yes it is sort of like that only smaller (laughs) my favorite operator name in all of programming language design is rust's like generics operator for function calls where so you know you can have polymorphic functions that work on like a variety of data types in rust and when you want to use like a specific instance of a function for a specific type and there's not enough information available to infer which one you want you do colon colon and then angle brackets and you put like the name of the type inside the angle brackets but the colon colon angle brackets is called turbofish. It's a fantastic name. That is a fantastic name. It sounds like an internet product from the 90s. Yes. Yes, it does. Turbofish Inc. <laughs> That's a dot-com bubble name for sure. Nice. I mean, yeah, I definitely love the name of it, but you know, it hurts my soul every time Rusty tells me type annotation needed all. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, speaking of language design, I feel like there is the phrase designed by committee, (laughs) and that is usually implied to be like a bad thing. So (laughs) why does it work or how well does it work for designing JavaScript? Yeah, well, so that's a really interesting question, because in some sense, it's almost not the goal of the committee. I honestly don't know how well it works in terms of you know, producing the cleanest, most ergonomic, most intuitive language. There's, you know, obviously there's a ton of historical cruft with JavaScript, right? But in some sense, that's maybe counterintuitively not the sort of primary charter of the committee. The primary charter of the committee is to make sure that things work across browsers, basically. The need for this sort of work, you know, grew out of the browser wars, right? And the awful experience of, you know, you you load up your favorite website and it tells you you need to go use Netscape or or Internet Explorer or whatever. And so so glad that no website now requires you to use Chrome or anything like that. Yeah. Mm, so glad we're past that. Yeah. Well, with the conference yesterday, I was on Chrome, but it didn't work on Windows and only worked on my Mac and it didn't even tell me. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah, there's still plenty of work to be done. And the, you know, the scope of the committee is certainly limited because it's only JavaScript, right? There's plenty of like most of the stuff I run into these days that's not cross-browser compatible is like video conferencing stuff, which is, you know, using like native APIs. And oftentimes it's just down to like who did a better, more efficient implementation of it. But in terms of JavaScript code, you know, like it used to be that if you wanted to use, you know, basic methods, like random stuff off of array.prototype, right? That you would like have to use a specific environment or you would have to check what environment you were in. And that's still sort of working reality for a lot of programmers. If you're, you know, if your company needs to support like Internet Explorer 8, right? Then you have to use Babel to translate everything you're writing down into an IE8 compatible fashion you know, where like you don't even have async await, right? That's been around long enough that a lot of us take it for granted. But 
Oh, well, I learned last week that async await is very, very unpopular in this group. Interesting. Wait, who here doesn't like async await? Oh, I thought you two were saying it's confusing. Oh, I was ready to get into a battle. <laughs> yeah, async await's great. So by browser wars, do you mean like how all the browsers had their own style of JavaScript or JScript? <laughs> or do you mean something later in time? Yeah, so it was mostly a business phenomenon, right? Where there were like different companies were basically vying for control of the web. Oh, not like now. <laughs> yeah, so it was distinctly different, right? Because the companies would, you know, like Microsoft would develop, you know, new features and get programmers to target those features and deliberately not, you know, spread them around the industry so that like IE6 was the only browser that supported those features, right? And then, you know, you'd get your, like your programmers or the programmers that they targeted would be like, oh, this is so awesome. This makes my work so much easier. So, you know, I'm going to develop using this feature. And then lo and behold, their site would only work on IE6 and they'd have to tell all their users to use it. And that was, you know, that was sort of how the browser wars were conducted. And, you know, there's certainly like capitalism still exists, right? Like the companies still want control of the web and control of the users of the web, right? But there's a lot more protection now. One of the big invisible ways that this happens is a tool that the committee maintains called TEST-262, which is, so it's a reference to ECMA-262, which is the spec, the JavaScript spec. That's just, I guess it's the 262nd document that ECMA produced. But so test 262 is a conformance suite. You can, so it's basically this huge battery of tests in the form of JavaScript programs with expected output. And you can run it against a JavaScript engine to measure how well it conforms to the spec. So now as part of the standards process, like when you're advancing your proposal, at some point you have to develop tests for it in test 262 to measure whether browsers or other environments are conforming to the spec and you know correctly implementing the feature that you're proposing. And then that's sort of measurable, you know, whether like you can get a percentage score for conformance. And it's also like a handy bug tracker, basically, for all the different implementations out there. They can just look at the output and say, oh, we're not handling, you know, yields inside of anonymous functions inside of for loop initializers correctly or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really fun. And yet, like, it seems like every project that ECMA makes sounds like an Umbrella Corp, like, thing. Something, like, vaguely evil and ominous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a good project, though. It's really necessary for the health of the web, I guess. I'd really love to know more about what you in particular work on, you know, at TC39. Uh, is there anything that you're championing right now? Yeah. So I'm championing the pattern matching proposal. Oh, baby. Let's go. Yeah, super exciting. I assume that was a, a recognition from another language that you've used pattern matching in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, like I, I'm a big fan of many functional programming languages. Yeah. Uh, like OCaml, like Reason. I imagine actually pattern matching in JavaScript is probably just a bunch of people using like ReasonML or using Rescript and saying, you know what? This would be dope if I had this in JavaScript. Yeah. Wait, we have regex. I don't understand. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, well, that is actually a good analogy. You know, if you're somebody who's familiar with regular expressions, you can think of pattern matching as regular expressions for like objects, sort of generic data. But yeah, so, and Oscar, to your point, it's definitely an ecosystem driven thing. There's this survey called State of JS. I think it's stateofjs.com. We'll leave it in the, in the show notes. And one of the questions they ask every year is, you know, what do you think is most missing from JavaScript? And I think pattern matching was the number three answer. What were one and two? I can't remember what two was. Number one, ironically, was type checking. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is a little, <laughs> it's a little funny. I mean, I don't know. I suppose I kind of agree in a way, right? Like I, I always prefer, you know, strong statically typed languages. And yet, but it is definitely impossible. <laughs> yeah, and yet, exactly. <laughs> definitely impossible in actual JavaScript would totally break backwards compatibility. And also, all the fun of JavaScript, in my opinion. We have TypeScript for that. <laughs> God. Yeah, you got to live on the edge. Is it a Boolean or is it a string true? I don't know. I thought we were past the browser wars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, but I mean, I would love to hear since you know since you're a champion. I would love to hear uh, just like yeah. you know a little bit more detail on like pattern matching in JavaScript and what that could really look like. Yeah, like you know, I haven't looked into it much, so I just kind of want to guess. You know, is it just mostly reusing switch statements? Because I think the syntax for switch statements right mm -hmm. now, like for particular cases, you got identifiers, you've got strings. I think that's kind of it. It seems pretty easy to extend the language to just add object support to cases. Sure. Yeah, sure. So that certainly a goal of pattern matching is to subsume every use case for switch. However, we're making it a priority in this proposal to not reuse any syntax because switch can be pretty confusing for newcomers. It's got quite a lot of foot guns. Oh, that's a little uh, committee term that I often forget is jargon. A foot gun is like something present in the language that would readily make a programmer shoot themselves in the foot. So we try to avoid foot guns. So if you knowingly introduced more switch statement-like syntax into JavaScript, would that be like Chekhov's foot gun? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm gonna use that in a plenary. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to I'm gonna make a point to work in Chekhov's foot gun. Nice. Oh my god. Yeah. I'll credit you in the plenary notes. Thank you. Oh that's so funny. Yeah. I know like the major thing that, you know, trips people up with switch statements is scoping of yes. case statements. So is there anything else or is that like the major thing? Yeah, there's that. And then there's also fall through. So if it, like if you don't mm. put a break. Oh, right. That little thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't put a break, you start executing arbitrary code that you don't expect. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had people run into the fall through thing. It's very useful in that one weird case where you need it, but then otherwise it should not be yeah. the default. Yeah, exactly. And so semantically, it's just an or, right? Like it's just a, you know, this condition or this condition, you know, like you can totally handle it inside of, you can handle it in a way that is opt in, not opt out. And that's a goal of pattern matching. 
is to make fall through like that opt in so that you don't accidentally do it and cause a production outage. That sounds like it was informed by personal experience. (laughs) (laughs) Not mine per se, but certainly believable. Yeah, as a beginner, I will say I did really love switch statements, but I also feel like sometimes when I think about programming, I think about it like Katamari. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to start with this thing. I'm just going to keep on tacking things onto yeah. it. Until you're a monster. So fall through works very well with that. Smiling whole series. Yeah. I mean, we already know I love nested ternaries, so. Oh, no. Tessa, oh, no. No, Tessa. So good. So there's some other really interesting properties of pattern matching that we're working on. So I should also say currently this is a stage one proposal. So we're, you know, we're like very much still ironing out the syntax and semantics. Everything is up for debate pretty much. You know, we've got like a pretty good vision of it, but it's very much subject to change. So don't hold me to any of this. (laughs) But some of the priorities we have one that would actually be really relevant in like front end development for if you're using Vue or other front end frameworks or libraries is yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're making the whole thing be an expression. And so what that means is inside of a match statement. Yeah, I guess I should say we're calling it a match statement. Yeah, and that actually I was and there's gonna be a match keyword. Just a quick aside. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was, I was gonna ask. Uh, I was like, if you're not reusing switch, the, is there gonna be a switch and a match in JavaScript? Yeah, that's the idea. That is spicy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, so we can't remove switch. Right. But the idea is once pattern matching lands, there shouldn't really be a reason to reach for it anymore. That makes sense. Like everything you could do with switch, you can do better with match. I mean, I am a much bigger fan of the match keyword in the language that I work on. Uh, we yeah. didn't cop out and call it switch. We called it match, you know, because we're real. <laughs> Spicy. Yeah. I have hot uh, programming language takes any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole match statement is going to be an expression, which means so inside of the match statement, you're going to have multiple branches representing each condition. Right now, we have it as a, like, it's going to be prefixed by the keyword when. So it's like match some object, when some pattern, when some other pattern, etc. And on the right-hand side of each of those when statements is going to be an expression. Now, you can either just have that be like a bare expression, like a literal number or a literal object or something. Or what we're going to do is piggyback off of do expressions, which is another proposal in the works. It's stage two. Or do in other languages. And it basically, yeah. Wait, sorry, I missed the first half of that. Stage do? Like two, do? Uh, French joke. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Because we're on a view podcast. Wee wee. Nice. Very nice wee wee. So... Do expressions let you, if you're familiar with Ruby, it's pretty much exactly the same as do blocks in Ruby. They basically let you stick the do keyword in front of a block, which is just represented by curly braces. And then you can have a bunch of statements inside the block. And then the last expression is the result of the do expression. So you can say like const foo equals do, and then a bunch of statements. And then the last statement in the do block is what gets assigned to foo. So is that going to be 
like a different use case to the existing do? Or is it like, are they overlapping use cases? Because we have like do if you're going to put it in front of a while, right? Oh, yeah. So that's actually a fixed keyword, like do while. I think that's the only place it can currently appear in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely distinct. So, and we're going to, so for pattern matching, we're going to reuse do in some capacity. The exact syntax of it is still under debate. But what it means is that the whole, like every branch of a match expression is going to have a valid expression result. So you can say like const foo equals match. And then whatever the result of the match statement is gets assigned to foo. Or you can, you know, importantly for like front end development, you could like match on some data returned from an API and then have each branch of the match be a component. And then whatever, like whichever arm gets selected, that component, you know, gets rendered. You can return match from your render function. You could also, in theory, use it to like potentially enhance like TypeScript compiling where you could have like an mm -hmm. overloaded function call and TypeScript would automatically make like a matching syntax for it to say, cool, instead, like here are the different signature functions. And then like, if it looks like this, do this. If it looks like this, do this. If it looks like this, do this. Otherwise, do this other one, right? Yeah. And for clarity, what do you mean by overloaded function calls? Is that like when you have like variable number of arguments? In other languages, not JavaScript, we have the concept of overloading a function definition. You would have different signatures for your function when you write a function. So if you do like function add and then x comma y, right? And you could be like, okay, x is an integer and y is an integer as part of your type definition. And then you would be able to go, okay, cool. In that case, it's going to add it like this. And then you can redefine add with two strings. And you can say, okay, when we say add with two strings, it should actually function in a slightly different way because we want to put a space in the middle of them or something, right? Like, But it's the same function name. And in JavaScript, you don't really have a way to do that. You would just like either... I think it probably just goes like... And like... It says no. Although I feel like the addition operand kind of behaves like that, right? Because if it's two strings, it's going to concatenate them. And if it's two numbers, it's going to add them. Yeah, there's some amount of overloading baked into the language, but it's generally not very user extensible. You can sort of hack your way around it by doing runtime type checks. Like, you know, if this first argument, like if type of this first argument is string, do something else if it's number do something else but that's you know that's pretty limiting you can't there's a lot that you could do with overloading in other languages that you can't do with that yeah when i worked at a company that used a functional language on the back end they liked to try and mm. make their own implementations of javascript that would allow for overloading and things like that <laughs> oh boy <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, match sounds really fun, but it also sounds terrifying. Like you think that it was hard programming with mixins and potentially messy with composition API. Now we also have this like match thing that can pick your components for you. 
I feel like it, it could be hard to keep track of. That's sort of interesting to think about. So like for me, like I have a very, you know, functional programming background. And so like for me, like pattern matching is like my bread and butter. Like yeah. no matter what it is I'm doing, like every single thing is a pattern match. Like it's in fact, like in a lot of like, you know, functional programming languages, we don't even use if statements, <laughs> right? Like it's just straight up like everything is a pattern match. Like sometimes you rather write a pattern match on a Boolean value than even write like, you know, a regular if statement uh, where it's like I'm typically trying to reach for a pattern match for literally everything. So like from my perspective, like I, I'm hype. Right. <laughs> like, like I'm hyped because I'm like, oh, man, like, you know, being able to return a match from my render function. And, you know, because like, you know, a lot of the times like, we, well, you know, actually, you know what, Tessa, pattern matching is actually built just for you. So that way you don't have to do your nested ternary operators. <laughs> <laughs> Called out. You know, I don't do that in production, right? <laughs> you can spread it out into this very nice match statement where, you know, you just, you have your different cases, which, you know, I guess we're going to call them wins. I have another question for you, Mark, about that, by the way, because, you know, I imagine one day we might want to have guarded cases in our match statements. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I know like, you know, OCaml, you know, uses like the win keyword for that. So you say like this case win some additional condition instead of just like, you know, the regular pattern match, which I think would be really weird if I had like match foo win this if, (laughs) you know, that could be a little bit weird. The current incarnation actually does use if, like when something, if something else. That is wild. Yeah, it's a little, it's definitely new. I'll say that it's Mm -hmm. new as far as I know. I haven't seen anybody use that particular combination of syntax, but you know that's what we get with infinite backwards compatibility. Mm-hmm. But yeah, oh, aside, remind me later or somebody ask me later to talk about don't break the web. Absolutely. That's a good, that's a good topic. So then I'll just say for pattern matching, we're also allowing bare if, like without. So, you know, you without can just, a win? Yeah, without a win. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was thinking like grizzly bears. (laughs) So one other cool feature of pattern matching that we're working on is a matcher protocol. So there's going to be currently we're using this symbol.matcher name, but there's going to be some specially named method that you can hang off of objects that you create that allows those objects to interact with the match statement. Basically, it lets you specify custom behavior for when, let's say, a class that you're controlling matches a particular case. And so like in that way, you can sort of interact with the baked-in features of the language, which is really cool. You could imagine even a, a library author right, writing like a symbol.matcher method off of the component class that like all components extend or something like that. And then you could match on a component inside, like, you know, maybe some styling code, right? Or something like that. You could pass a component in as the operand. It's pretty sweet. Now that sounds scary. <laughs> I, I hoped, I was thinking, I hope this episode nerds knives Evan into making something. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, like that definitely sounds like it opens up a ton of opportunities for like a lot of stuff. And, you know, for because, you know, we in JavaScript land love to make things as magical as possible. Yeah. (laughs) And and that is certainly a way you're going to make stuff truly magical. Magical or messy? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I like to make things as gross as possible. That's truly the appeal of the Nessa Turneries for me, perhaps as a comic code is for Alex. <laughs> when you were talking about functional programming earlier, I just was reminded of that video that was using all the programming memes in the summer with the like the square hole and the triangle hole and everything was going in like the r- rectangle hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of using it was symbol.matcher uh, was like the yeah. Yeah. The neat thing about that is it, it would allow you to design your own little DSLs, your, your own little domain specific languages um, yeah. for doing cute little stuff <laughs> inside of JavaScript, which is kind of nice, right? Because, you know, if you're looking towards the future and you don't want to use a tool like Babel or something like that, or you don't want to have some sort of nasty tag template literals or something like that. You can yes. actually just say like, oh, hey, actually, I'm just going to implement this class. I'm going to, you know, define how it matches on things. And then for any, like, I'm imagining like even writing something like a state machine, you could do something super duper cool uh, yeah. with a class and, and having custom matchers on it. So I think it's going to open up a lot of cool opportunities. Uh, so I'm excited to see more about that. Yeah, I'm excited for it as well. I think it's going to be really powerful. So to wrap up, can you give us like a quick overview of how these proposals get made or pushed through and how you avoid breaking everything when you add something new (laughs) to the language. Sure. So proposals, I alluded to this earlier, but proposals move through stages. So there's stage zero, one, two, three, four. Stage zero is just you have thought of an idea. Stage one is you've presented the idea to the committee and the committee agrees that it's like an interesting problem area worth solving. Then stage two is that the committee expects or the committee agrees that this proposal will be included in the spec eventually in the JavaScript standard. And then stage three is the syntax and semantics have been pretty much nailed down. There's a formal draft of the specification. You know, we've got tests for it and it's sort of ready to go. And then stage four is this proposal has been implemented in, I think the requirement is at least two environments. So like usually two browsers and it's sort of locked down. We've gotten positive feedback from beta testers out in the world who have you know enabled that browser feature flag or whatever the case may be. And then it's ready, you know, from stage four, the next time we cut like ES 2022 or whatever, all stage four proposals get moved into the main spec. Now, and then the second half of that, how do we avoid breaking the web? So that phrase, don't break the web, is like sort of a a common refrain among the committee. And it basically reflects our infinite backwards compatibility mandate where like all, you know, all websites for to the best of our ability, which, you know, is just JavaScript, right? We can't control anything like HTML does or something like that. But to the best of our ability, all websites should work forever, right? Something somebody wrote in the 90s that's no longer maintained should still load up in Firefox 93. And that's a, you know, that's pretty restrictive, right? So one quick anecdote for how that manifests is you might have heard of the Smooshgate controversy. So there I was hoping it was Alex nodding. Yeah. (laughs) Smooshgate is great. So basically, there was a proposal to add array.prototype.flatten, which takes like a nested array and just produces a one-dimensional array from it. But through user research, 
we found that there were some websites relying on a specific version of Moo tools from the early 2000s. I think it was the early 2000s that had their own array.prototype.flatten. Like Moo tools monkey patched that onto the global array prototype. And it had different behavior from the one in the proposal. So by adding this one in the proposal, the websites that relied on that would break. So long story short, we couldn't add array.prototype.flatten. It ended up becoming array.prototype.flat, which we all know and love and presumably have used a few times. But in the middle there, there was a long thread where one of the champions semi-sarcastically proposed that instead of calling it flatten, we call it smoosh, array.prototype.smoosh. And that ignited some discourse, we'll say. That ignited some discourse <laughs> within the community. And there's a great write-up of this whole thing by Matthias Bynens, who we can link the, the article in the show notes, I guess, if you want to read the whole story. But yeah, we definitely full backwards compatibility. Can't break anything. Can't break nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, TC39 is then sometimes jealous of this, like, additions approach of, of Rust. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely possible in the future, but who knows? New Horizons. Oh, Animal Crossing? <laughs> and uh, with that, Mark, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me, my sort of digital home is mpc.sh. That's, I have a very inactive blog, and you can read my CV there if you want to hire me. My Twitter is at MPCSH underscore, which I'm very salty about. I will forever be salty <laughs> about that. You never don't have a, an opportunity to bring that up, I feel like. Yeah. And I am MPCSH on GitHub. You can find my TC39 work there, which is mostly just commenting on the pattern matching repo <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And with that, it's time to move on to this week's picks. Alex, would you like to go first? Yes. This week's pick is me being extremely self-promotional. I just finished talking at Jamstack Conf, and they've just posted the video of it. So my pick this week is my totally awesome talk about Jamstack stuff and how to use it efficiently to build really bad ideas. So uh, link is in the show notes. I like how we're all just going to pretend this is Congratulations. Isn't... <laughs> yeah, congrats. Uh... But you're not always extremely self-promotional. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> how about you, Ari? What are your picks for this week? My pick slash picks so is actually some cookbooks, but specifically I'll just pick one out of this collection. So I don't actually cook, fun fact. <laughs> But I enjoy eating what other people cook. <laughs> and I also happen to be vegetarian. And when I was a kid, my mom had these cookbooks that she would make stuff out of that I really liked. So I forced my husband to get some of these cookbooks <laughs> and start making me stuff out of it. But so they're based on food served at a restaurant called Moosewood, which I believe is located in New York. But specifically, one I've really been enjoying the food from is Moosewood Restaurant Cooks at Home. They're all quick recipes. It also has a really nice section on what to stock your pantry with on a regular basis so that you can just throw some of the meals together. So it, it's been really helpful because my husband wasn't so much of a cook when we first met, but he is getting quite proficient. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. 
Yeah, speaking of stocking, I was like, oh, Ari is vegetarian. That was like a big thing when we were buying food. I was like, I don't know what her dietary <laughs> restrictions are. And Oscar, what are your picks for this week? Yes, yes. My pick this week is a fantastic video game called Slay the Spire. It is a deck building roguelike game where you progress you know, through a spire, building a deck of cards presented to you as you try to defeat all the enemies. It wow. is absolutely fantastic if you love, you know, sort of light games that you can just, you know, play a game, take like 20 minutes and then chill. It's awesome. It's super cheap. It's available on PC and they put it on phones too. So it's available on iOS, Android. It's available on the Nintendo Switch. So literally any device you want to play it on, it's available and it is fantastic. And the music's so good. One of my coworkers, I think, is like world ranked in that. That wow. is wild. Is it multiplayer? No, it is a single player game for those of us who don't have friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's too bad because we could have also done like a Slay SMR the Spire game. Slay SMR. Oh my lord. (laughs) All right. How about you, Mark? What are your picks for this week? Well, I see, first of all, that I think Alex has left a little note to talk about my headphones. Yeah, we want to know what what your headphones are, how comfortable or not comfortable they are. Also, oh, they're extremely comfortable. Yeah. Warning, Mark is an audiophile. I'm not that bad. I actually used to be worse. <laughs> I'm very interested because you are sporting the style of headband that I find most comfortable. But I have a feeling because you're an audiophile, that means they're insanely expensive. So I should just stop listening now. <laughs> well, I mean, it just depends on your definition of insane, honestly. <laughs> okay, so they're insanely expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say they are. I will say actually, well, I'll say the name first. They're the Dan Clark Audio Aeon 2s. Wow. Specifically, these are the closed back ones, but the open back ones are just as good. I will say they punch way above their price point. I have owned significantly more expensive headphones and I've listened to really significantly more expensive headphones. And these are way up there. Like, you know, if this was a blind, if I did like some sort of blind listening test, I would guess these are priced way higher than they actually are. They're really good. Highly recommend. And they'll run out of anything. I'm actually, I'm not using an amplifier or anything. They're just coming out of my audio interface. So sweet stuff. Okay. But what we really want to know is how do they feel around your earlobes and how do they feel on the top of your head? They're really nice. So they're extremely lightweight. That was like a design goal for Dan Clark Audio. They weigh like next to nothing. There's some clamp force, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. And the headband is like, it perfectly distributes weight. Ear pads are super plush. They're, they're so, so, so comfortable. I mean, I've worn them for, you know, eight plus hours straight and not gotten uncomfortable. Highly recommend. Wow. I, this might be the first contender to all the AirPods Max wearers on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that that um, last sounded like the, these are like 500 times as expensive as the AirPods Max. No. No, no. <laughs> AirPods Max are actually really expensive for what they are. TBH. Yeah. Okay, so are these more or less expensive? <laughs> oh, more. <laughs> De- definitely more, but they sound way better. They're not lossy, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, I just looked them up. <laughs> yeah, no, those are insanely expensive. Yeah, but... Okay, so what's the difference between the Aeon 2s and the Aeon RTs? Oh, a lot, actually. Okay. The 2s are way better than the RTs. I've heard them both side by side. There we go. Yeah, definitely the 2s. And actually, if you're going to get one of them, get the Aeon 2 Noir. They did like a little retune and made them black instead of this weird red. Ooh. 
and they sound a little better. Nice. Yeah, I mean, the re- the RT is never as good as the original, right? Because you're just repeating what somebody else said. Ooh. Ooh. Um, oh, man. Let them know. Oh, yeah. man. Well, let's go into those picks, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> sure. First up is a book that I'm working through with a dear friend of mine called Crafting Interpreters by Bob Nystrom. It takes you through implementing like a full complexity interpreter. Wow. And actually implementing it twice, once as a like simplistic interpreter and once as like a you know pretty optimized compiler. It's a really cool book. It's really well written. Highly recommend. And highly recommend working through it with a friend. That's been a lot of fun. Then a video game that Oscar, I think you're gonna like this. It's called Baba Is You. It's a really, really fascinating game. So it's a it's kind of a 2D like top-down thing where you're on a grid and you're just controlling a character called Baba. It's a little sheep. And the rules of the game are presented as blocks on the game board that you can interact with. So like, you know, in an early level, you'll be surrounded by a wall and you can't get through the wall. And the flag that you need to touch to complete the level is on the outside. But then with you on the inside, like in the room, is the phrase wall is stop. And if you break up the text, then you can just move through the wall. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. It's as if a programming language theorist like designed a video game to specifically tickle our brains. It's oh, my Lord. It's really incredible. See, I was going to say it felt more like being in a whiteboarding interview when they're like, here's this puzzle. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just <laughs> wanted to have a fun, chill time. <laughs> It's unbelievably good. Yeah, uh, it, it I, sounds it sounds like one of those games where like you're gonna enjoy it the same way you enjoy like Factorio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, so not at all. I'm kidding. <laughs> I played it for five minutes, and it's my it was instantly my favorite game of all time. Oh, I'm definitely gonna check it out. Last pick, totally off topic, ninety de- or one eighty degrees, I guess is the latest episode of the 50 Project, Mount Stimson, which is it's a project by Cody Townsend, who's a professional skier turned ski mountaineer, who is working on climbing and skiing all 50 of the mountains in the 50 classic ski descents of North America, this like coffee table book. So this is the Mount Stimson episode is the first of this season. And it's really exciting. It's one of the worst approaches that he's ever had. And near and dear to my heart, as I'm also a ski mountaineer. Check it out on YouTube. Nice. It's Ooh. awesome. Yeah. Those are rad picks. Thanks. I guess that makes it time for my picks. And my first pick is actually a toy, Ari. So my first pick is the Dumpster Fire This Is Fine edition. So this company, 100% Soft, makes all of these like little toy dumpsters that have like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a kind of wide set smiley face kind of like now i can't think of the company but there's another company that does like smiling boba tea cups and things like that and also like adventure time has those kinds of faces so they make dumpster fires with that face on it but this year they came out with a this is fine themed edition and i thought that was funny so that's pick number one Pick number two, I've been trying to figure out how to write code on Windows recently, which has been a journey. 
And Marks and my friend Tierney showed me how to set up WSL2 on my computer so I can write code in Linux instead. And none of these things are like words or phrases that I thought I would be able to do or understand. But, you know, it's happening. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> Love WSL2. But it was really hard to get my prompt customized because what we didn't realize is when you open the terminal into Linux, for some reason, it starts you in your Windows file system. So it wasn't remembering or detecting my bash RC because that was stored in Windows instead of Linux. Oh. Yeah. I have no idea why it does that. Yeah. And the final pick is On Your Side, which is like a mini series within a series by Nathan Fielder, who I just think is like the funniest person on the planet. And it's like a distilled version of Nathan for you that came before Nathan for you, where he'll have like a single question that he wants to investigate, and then he'll go interview an expert about that question. So if you enjoyed Nathan for you, maybe check out on your side. Yeah. And so with that, that's all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, head on over and find us at enjoy the view cast. And also for our feline companions that sounded weird for our cats join us at enjoy the view cats um be sure to subscribe to this show if you haven't already and leave a very stellar review of our show and finally remember to tell at least one friend what you enjoyed about today's episode thank you all for listening and until next time enjoy the view Welcome to our podcast talking about TC39. <laughs> this is definitely going to be one of those paid extras on our coffee page. <laughs> <laughs>